Uh, We're going to be looking at Psalm 13 this morning. Um, Just seeing what's behind me up there. Um, But before we do so, would you please uh, bow with me in prayer? Our gracious God, we acknowledge this morning that except it be for your intervening grace in our life through our Lord Jesus, all of us are without hope. But because you are the God who loves and has loved us through Jesus, we have hope. Thank you for redeeming a bride for yourself. Thank you for not leaving us as orphans, but you've given us your spirit. Thank you that he is with us. And I pray, O Lord, that he would work this morning, that he would draw us each into your word, for it is living and it is active and it is sharper than a double-edged sword. And I pray that he would take your word and pierce to the innermost parts of each of our beings, that we would know you, that we would know your Son, that we would know the fellowship of your Spirit, that we would leave this place encouraged because we've been with you, and that we would leave this place rejoicing in our Lord Jesus, dependent upon the Holy Spirit. So be near us now, O God, for it's in Christ's name that we do pray. Amen. In Psalm 13, King David writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. It was uh, the ride to Maine as as a young boy that I dreaded. Um... For this little boy, it was misery. We lived in northern Connecticut, and most summers we would travel to Maine for vacation. So please understand, this isn't a slam on Maine. This is a slam on the drive to Maine that, as a little boy, I didn't like. The gold Plymouth that we had with the white vinyl top, no AC. I am one of three, the youngest, so as such, I was sandwiched between my brother and my sister in the back seat of that gold Plymouth, windows open, speed limit was 55, and we began the eternal, what felt like to me, five-hour drive to Grammys up in Waldeboro. 
And as any little boy would do, probably no more than five minutes out the door, you are, Dad, when are we going to get there? Dad, like David in the psalm, how much? How much longer? Those questions hounded my father from the back seat of that gold Plymouth. How long? Or perhaps you're familiar with the children's storybook, Alexander and the Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad, rotten day. And Alexander's day goes from bad to worse, from waking up with chewing gum in his hair to having no prize in his cereal box, but his brothers did, to not getting the window seat on the way to school, to his teacher not liking his picture of the invisible castle, which was a blank piece of paper. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. To his best friend deserting him for his third best friend, to having no dessert in his lunch bag, to the shoe store being out of his favorite sneaker, the blue one with the red stripes, and he had to settle for plain white ones. And then there was lima beans for dinner and kissing on TV, which he hated, Alexander said then that he wanted to move to Australia because then life would just be better. He might have been saying, how much longer till this day is over? As we get older and face different suffering, is it not still the question we ask to our Father, God, when are we going to get there? God, how much longer? How much more pain? Psalm 13 brings us into the heart of a man who has been called a man after God's own heart. The great King David. David who is part of the lineage of King Jesus. Now, at this point in David's life, he's not as aware of this as we are, this side of the cross. But he is a man, a a sinful man in need of grace, and a man in the midst of trial. And this is where we find David in Psalm 13, if you will, from the back seat, crying to his father, experiencing a string of dreadful days, saying, how long, how long, O Lord? How we face suffering the the right way and the wrong way is opened up to us in this passage. As I already said, I turned 51 this year. And among hopefully the many things I'm learning by age 51, there is one thing that is preeminently clear that I've learned over the years is that suffering Adversity, hardship, pain is part of the normal human experience. You ever heard somebody say, I wish my life were normal? What is normal? Dealing with pain, dealing with suffering, dealing with hardship, that is normal. We are looking forward to the day. That's abnormal. (laughs) 
That's the way it was intended to be. But now, this side of heaven, we deal with suffering. It came with the introduction of sin, and it will vanish at the coming of Jesus. I also know that as I look out at this congregation, even though I don't know most of you, some of you I know, I do know this, that you are dealing with suffering, that you are dealing with pain, that you are dealing with adversity. There are those dealing with perhaps false accusations against them. There are those dealing with disease. Some here today might be dealing with a new diagnosis and and all the accompanying fears and questions that, that go along with that. There are those of you here today that know the grief of wayward children, of prodigal sons and daughters. You long for their return to the Father. There are those here with troubled homes, with fractured marriages. There are those of you who look great on the outside, but you're shackled in a dungeon of despair and depression. That is the normal human experience. Like David, we all face suffering. Today, what I'd like to do is open up this psalm in in three ways. Um, And each of these points, I promise you, will ascend in terms of encouragement as we go through this this psalm. But I'd like you to see, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, that as we face suffering, despair will happen. There's no if. It will happen when all we do is focus on our circumstances. Despair will happen when we focus on our circumstances. David's circumstance, David's mess, the problem that he is in, is most likely when Saul was pursuing him to kill him. He was to be king. He's being hunted. He couldn't read to the end of of 1 Samuel and see Saul's death and into 2 Samuel and see his appointment to the throne. He was living the drama, in the thick of it, in the moment. When my my wife is sitting in the back and when Ruthie and I uh, watch a movie, she has to know the ending. Just the way it is. So she'll Google it before we even go. So this I do know. This is probably the third thing I know by age 51, that if I go to a movie with my wife, it's going to end well, which is not a bad thing because we leave the theater happy. But David was living out the drama. He couldn't Google the ending. He couldn't read ahead. He couldn't find out what was happening. He was in the thick of it. He was caught in those circumstances. And as we face times of suffering, we can turn our eyes one of two ways. We either look at our circumstances or we focus on our Creator. 
We either fix our gaze on the mess we're in or we look at our master. We either look at our suffering or we fix our eyes on Jesus, our Savior. In which way we look, which way we fix our direction makes a world of difference in how we live in the midst of our adversity, in the midst of our pain. We can live or we can exist. Do you know what it's like to feel like all you're doing is existing? We're not called to just exist. We're called to live. We're called to thrive. Now, while David is turning to his God in this psalm, and this is good, we get a window into his heart in the despair that he feels as he focuses on his circumstance, as he just looks at his mess and his suffering. For as he does that, and when we do that, we will begin to question our God. And in his fourfold, how long, O Lord, in verses 1 through 2, he questions four different things about God. Just note these with me as we walk through those. In verse 1, he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? He's beginning to question the presence of God. Did you forget me? Where did you go? Surely, O oh God, the, the presence of this suffering and the length of it must mean something happened to you. You're taking a nap, you're on vacation, you're too busy, what's the deal, God? Did you forget me? Are you there? You ever been in the thick of your suffering and wondering, God, hello, are you there? Did you forget me? When all we do is focus on the circumstance, on the mess, on the suffering, we can begin to question the presence of God. David does. Notice as well, he asks this question. How long will you hide your face from me? I believe in that statement, David's questioning the very love of God. Have you ever had somebody say to you that, You disgust me. I can't even look at you any longer. Have you ever had somebody literally turn away from you and not look at you, not make eye contact with you, simply avoid you? At those times, we we question their care. We question their love. And the questioning of their care and the questioning of their love is only enhanced by the intimacy of the relationship. If one of the the people that works for me is like, I don't want to talk to you, and they turn away from me, that has a completely different impact on me than if my wife says, I don't want to talk to you, and turns her face from me. The level of intimacy affects how that feels. And here David is saying, God, where are you? You've turned your face from me. There's a question, I believe, there of the very love of God. But David also questions, I believe, the very goodness of God. He asks as well, how long 
must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long, Lord? He's saying, God, I'm in despair. I'm sorrowing. I'm sinking. I need help. I can't figure out what to do. And surely, God, if you are good, you will rescue me. You will bring an end to my pain. Have you ever told God in the midst of your suffering, you know what, God, if my kid was in this much pain, I'd help him. For crying out loud, God, when my, when my dog is whimpering, I bring him to the vet. How long, oh God, do I need to take counsel in my own soul? Where are you? Are you good? How long must I comfort myself? How long must I feel miserable? Are you really good? He questions his love, his goodness, his very presence. But in the fourth, how long? He says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I believe here he's questioning the very power of God. He might be saying, from my perspective, God, things are looking pretty bleak. You see, God, my concept of winning the battle and your concept of winning the battle are radically different. And if I were writing the story, I'd be riding off on the white horse by now. And since you're not doing anything, God, since the suffering continues, you must be licked. Because all I can see as I focus on my mess is the triumph of my enemy. Are you powerful, God? You see, as we While David is, in Psalm 13, praying to God, we get a window into his heart and mind with that fourfold how long. He's asking God these questions as he's looking at his mess. And he begins to question God's power, his presence, his goodness, his love. Our second point this morning, and as I said, they're going to ascend in level of encouragement. As we face suffering, hope, hope begins when we embrace our identity. As we face suffering, hope begins when we embrace our identity. Verses 3 and 4. The Lord, who David calls out to, is now my God. Notice in verse 1, it's simply, how long, O Lord? And now it's, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. My God. Ruthie and I love being grandparents. I have not met a grandparent yet that doesn't love being a grandparent. And our daughter, Noelle, has uh, two little girls, Annie and Lucy. And uh, our son, Nate, has two kids, Aiden and Riley. And when Annie was first beginning to speak, um, they call us Nana and Papa. I would see my wife melt when Annie said, my Nana. 
my Nana. In that little possessive pronoun, my, there showed an intimacy and a connection. You're not just Nana. You're my Nana. And I believe in this statement there is a recognition of relationship. That David is not just saying, how long, O Lord? But now he's saying, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. You're my God. You're my Yahweh. You're my Savior. You are my Master, my Creator. I am yours and you are mine. Because of this relationship, David knows that God has given him a purpose. David is asking his God to do something. He is saying that the weight of his suffering is great. He feels like he's going to die. He prays, Lord, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. He knows that if he is to live, not just exist, if he is to get through this, he needs his father's help. He doesn't want his enemy to prevail over him. He doesn't want his enemy to see him shaken. He wants to defeat the enemy. He wants to be strong. He knows he is called to serve his God, to live, to win, to be strong. Hope begins in our suffering when we embrace our identity. We see this here in the life of David. He understands he's in relationship with God. He's seeking God, help me so I don't die. Help me so my enemy doesn't prevail. What is our identity? Who are we in the year 2018? The gathering of believers at Harmony Bible Church. Through Jesus, we are children of the living God. That's who you are if you know Jesus. You are a child of the living God in a world filled with sin. We have a new identity. We are the redeemed. We are joint heirs with Christ of all the promises of God. We are royal children who have a better hope. Yet, we're still living in a world infected with sin. But that's who we are. We're children of the living God. He's not just God. He's my God. He's not just Jesus, he's my Jesus, my Savior. And we have a purpose. You have a purpose. I have a purpose, and it's not defined by your occupation and where you get your paycheck. It's defined by your identity of who you are. And our purpose is to live, not just exist, in this world that is infected with sin when life is hard. Our purpose is to live. Our purpose is to thrive. Our purpose is not to avoid pain. Now, I'm not saying we should go out and invite it and look for it. But if your sole purpose in life 
is to live a pain-free, trouble-free life, you are going to be very discouraged because it's at every turn. Our purpose is to live well when life is hard. Our purpose is to serve our God in a world filled with sin. John 10, Jesus tells us that we have an enemy that is coming to steal and kill and destroy. But we have a Savior who has come to give us life and give it abundantly. And in the context of shepherd and sheep, Jesus is saying there is a wolf that is coming to steal your joy, to kill your faith, to destroy your hope. That's what Satan is coming to do. And isn't that what suffering threatens to do to you and me? Steals our joy, kills our faith, and destroys our hope. But Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and I have come to give you abundant life. So that in the midst, not to get rid of pain, this side of heaven, that's coming but this side of heaven to enable you to live with that, with hope, with joy. First Peter 5.8 says, Be watchful, because you have an adversary, the devil, and he's prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to re- devour. So resist him firm in your faith. We are children of the living God. Our purpose is to live, not just exist when life is hard. Our purpose is to resist the enemy, to stand firm in the face of adversity. That's when our hope begins. Not when we focus on the circumstance, but when we focus on our identity and the one that we are connected to, the Lord Jesus And as I do that, I demonstrate to a watching world the glory, the worth, and the excellency of my God. Now, we're going to conclude and look at verses 5 and 6. And as important as it is to see what is said in the next two verses. It's also very important to see what is not recorded. As David is in the midst of great adversity, there is no mention that his suffering ends, that his trial is over, that the hunt of Saul for David has ceased. Now, obviously, it does, okay? You and I know the end of the story. But as commentators believe, if this occasion is the pursuit by Saul, you know, eventually, Saul dies, the threat is gone. But at this time, at this time, the trial doesn't end. I think that's profound, because David has a huge shift in thinking in verses 5 and 6. What brought that about? Was it because the pain was gone, the adversity was gone, the trial was gone? No. 
his focus shifted from his circumstance to his creator. He was resting in his identity and in his purpose. David never gets an answer to the questions he asked in verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord? But something happened. Something happened. I don't think it was that, you know, he just chugged down a Red Bull or got a monster drink and <laughs> new sense of pep and boom, here he goes. No. By God's intervening amazing grace, by God's intervening amazing grace, David stops focusing on the circumstance and he looks at his creator. And my friends, as we face our suffering, our hope will be sustained as it was for David, when we look to Jesus. That's the only way we're going to get through. Notice verses 5 and 6. David says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, and I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Our faith, Our joy, our worship is sustained in the midst of suffering as we fix our eyes on Jesus. For in Jesus we see what David saw. And we see it so much clearer. We see the steadfast love of God. We see the salvation of God. And we see in the Lord Jesus how God deals bountifully with us. And this is what David focuses on. The steadfast love of God, the salvation of God, and the bountiful grace of God. And that sustains him to bring him through. In closing, let me just three thoughts about those three things, the steadfast love of God, the salvation of God, and the grace of God. In Jesus, we see the loyal, covenant-keeping love of God. We see that God follows through on what God promises to do. God does what is best for us in the Lord Jesus. He provides for our greatest need. And you might think your greatest need is to get rid of suffering, to get rid of adversity. No, your greatest need is the same as my greatest need. It's our sin, and it's to deal with that sin. And God has provided for that in the Lord Jesus. We see the steadfast love of God. In Jesus, we experience the salvation of God. Jesus is the one who promised to crush the head of Satan. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham through all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the one through whom we can be delivered from sin. Jesus is the one who who enables us to address God, not just as God, but as my God. He alone brings us into relationship with the God of the universe. And in Jesus, we are shown the grace of God. God deals bountifully with us in Christ. 
When Jason was introducing me and he was commenting about my testimony, I began to think, what's he going to say? But he's right. Those are my two favorite words in the Bible. But God. (laughs) Except it be for the love of God, the bountiful, amazing grace of God. Where would I be? Be destined for hell. But God has done that. Save me through Jesus. You know, that's where my eyes need to be fixed. That's where my gaze needs to be set. Because when I look at the crud in my life, and I have it, and you have it, man, that can be discouraging. But when I fix my eyes there, and as you will in a moment at this table, behold, emblems of the steadfast love of God. Behold, emblems of the abundant grace of God. Behold, emblems of salvation through our Lord Jesus. You fix your eyes there. There's hope. There's power. There's grace. One of my favorite hymns is Hallelujah, What a Savior. The stanzas read as follows. I won't sing them. That's good for you. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruin sinners to reclaim. And you know the line next, right? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place. Condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless are we, but spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement? Full atonement? Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished. That was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And when he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing in a heaven with no pain and no adversity. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Look to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. He is our hope. Our Father, we thank you that in the midst of adversity, you are with us. Even when we cry, we accuse you of not being good or loving or present or powerful. You're there. And in your grace, you draw us into your presence. And you remind us that you are Abba Father. And you have loved us. And you are steadfast in that love. Oh God, cause us to cling to Jesus. And may we know your power so that we will display to a watching world your glory, your worth, and your excellency. For it's in the name of our coming King, our Lord Jesus, we pray.
Amen.